Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Most of you probably either read or heard or saw the movie Wall Street, the first edition in the 80s, when one of those uh, very, very uh, nefarious men, Gordon Gecko, made that famous statement when he says, greed, for a lack of better word, is good. And then he gave a speech that has been used so very often, but in reality, what he was really doing was giving an accurate commentary on the secular worldview that America holds and the world basically holds. Now, it's been modified a little bit since then, but still at the root of it is this dynamic of greed. And again, we can speak a lot about greed. We are going to talk a little bit about desiring money and others. That's our main message today, but it's not a whole expose on greed. Now, the beauty that I have of shepherding you people here is that I know so many of you have had the privilege of conversing with you and watching how you operate and what you do. And I don't really sense there's a an underlying feeling of we got to have money and money is important. we got to wear the right moo to church and drive the right car and have the most expensive surfboard. You know, I don't sense that in our group. But I do sense this, that all of us have the propensity on that slippery slope to still want a little bit more than we have today. Not necessarily wrong, but then we could move to the next level and we move away from what we have and not have the contentment, which is the opposite of greed, and that we do need to be content. For those of you that would like to have a simple working definition of contentment, and I do have that in a complete message on the ABCs of character building, I would like to leave you this definition. Take it to the bank and help your kids understand it, and you might want to massage it a little bit, and maybe find biblical examples, biblical principles on the idea of contentment, because I will speak to that, but I want that to be resonating in your mind. Contentment is simply being satisfied with what God has given me, period. Being satisfied with what God has given me. And so I recognize what I have came from the Lord. How I got it, if God gave it to me, it would have been done in a biblical fashion. And I'm going to be satisfied with that. And so if I work harder and get more, I thank God. If God provides it through an inheritance or some other way that's biblical and appropriate, I thank God. But I am content with what I have. So we're going to keep that in mind. Now, I want to speak to the idea of desiring for a moment. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and have your pens ready for those of you that would like to maybe mark because I want you to see where the desiring for the more wealth becomes a dangerous factor. And I'm going to open it up a little bit more, but I just want to speak to the concept of desire. So turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you didn't come with a Bible, that's all right. We have Bibles in the pew, particularly pick out the New American because that's the one I'm going with. It's a literal translation. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to go out and get one. If you don't have the money, um, just get it from my wife, Carol. She's rich. She'll buy it for you. I'm just joking. But we'll get you a Bible. I want you to have it. All right, back to more seriousness here. First Timothy chapter 6, so you know a little bit about what the background is. You have the Apostle Paul that is speaking to his mentor, preparing him to be effective and fruitful in ministry. And this particular uh, son in the faith, Timothy, was pastoring in a community known as Ephesus to the church at Ephesus, as we know from history. Now, that being the case, what did he want that pastor to be able to do to teach his people? So in a sense, I'm an extension of Paul's message to Timothy as I'm now giving this to you, and you're an extension of the Ephesian church 2,000 years later. And here's what he says in verse 9. He says, but those who want to get rich, circle that phrase, who want to get rich, it's 
that idea for richness, for more wealth. I want to get rich. It's not those who want to have the basic needs of life met. It doesn't say that. But those who want to get rich, and then it goes through an explanation there. Verse 10, he says, for the love of money. Not money is not evil. That's a little more of an amoral. It's kind of a tool to build with. It's not a toy to play with. It's not a weapon to do warfare with. Money is really a tool to build with. So for those who love money, that's that desire for more. Staying in the same verse, it says this. It's not only a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it had problems. And we'll talk more specifically when I get there, but I wanted you to see the longing for it. Unless you think that that's just a New Testament uh, uh, principle from Paul, it's just permeating all through Scripture. You're going to find in Proverbs 23, 4, and 5, it talks about laboring to be rich and the dangers of that laboring to be rich. Laboring is not wrong. Laboring and being properly compensated and soon compensated is very biblical. But to be rich is not. Hastening to be rich, Proverbs 28, verse 20. In fact, it even speaks as isolated as this might sound, is trying to go after an inheritance that would be coming your way, but you want it sooner than you should have it, that too becomes a danger. So it's loving something that God is not ready yet to give to you or at all to give to you and not being content with what you have. So I wanted you to have that in that concept. I'd like you to hold your place in First Timothy, and we will come back to that, and I'm going to unpack it with some points, but I'd like you to turn to Ecclesiastes now. Ecclesiastes gives a wonderful explanation. In fact, I'm wondering sometimes if the Holy Spirit is now speaking and rather prompting Paul to write in the New Testament what he's already prompted, what we believe Solomon had written in Ecclesiastes here. So if you will, look to Ecclesiastes and turn, if you will, to chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes. And it's not too hard to find. So just look in the Old Testament. You're going to have Psalms and Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. If you turn to Ecclesiastes 5, I am going to kind of walk us and talk us through Ecclesiastes. So if you want to have your pens ready, you can. Now, again, I'm not here to put you on a guilt trip. I'm not here to beat up on you. But I am saying we all need a checkup from the neck up, especially in today's society when we are just bombarded with feeling made to feel discontent. We got to have a better car, bigger car. We have to go places, have this, buy that, do this, send our kids here, send our kids there. We have this all around us. We can't stop that from happening. Now, how do we live in it in a way that would glorify the Lord? And here's what he says about the folly of riches. Verse 10, it says, he who loves money, again, desiring, will not be satisfied with money, which means that the more you have it, the more you want it. I like to say it this way. It would be like you have a, you're very thirsty, extremely thirsty. And so here in front of you, there is a glass full of sand and salt. And I say, drink this. It'll quench your thirst. And so we drink it and all it does is make us want to have more. Very similar to when we drink soda because it's a lot of sodium in there and it makes us want to drink more. It's like those of you in the old days. They would go to a bar. They put peanuts and popcorn so it gets salty. So you would drink more and only then you wouldn't be satisfied. And you'd have to have more. And that's what this is speaking to. Stay with me as I go further. Nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their own owners except to look on it? I thought that was interesting. When you have it, you begin to look at it. And so you want to just keep looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. But eventually, when you begin to desire the Lord, all of this starts to become trinkets. Now, some of it may have value, but in reality, spiritual value, it loses all that shine, and you'll wonder what to do with it. I don't know if this was a spiritual decision, but it has occurred this week in San Antonio, Texas. Phil Collins, who has been known as being 
the greatest collector of artifacts from the Battle of the Alamo. In fact, they believe he has the greatest museum pieces for the Alamo. And he's been collecting them for years in his mansion in Switzerland. And he says, and I'm quoting him, that when he went through his stuff of the Alamo, he said, I looked at it every single day. And then I realized I'm basically the only one that appreciates and enjoys this. Wouldn't it be better if I could give it back to the people of the Alamo so that millions of people could see these artifacts and remember what those patriots did in the Battle of Texas? And so again, there's a person that somehow came to a realization that all he had was stuff to look at and it wasn't enough for him. All right, verse 12, it now talks about how that the folly of riches will bring worry. It says, the sleep of the working man is sleep, whether he eats a little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Again, the rich man sometimes is worrying about his money because there's a great deal of, of worry. I picked up an article just this week, and it went over, what do rich people worry about? If you don't mind, I'd like to read this article to you on what rich people worry about. Because um, you probably don't have any of these worries because you're not rich. But should you ever be rich, you might have these worries. It came out on June 20th by Tom Sightings. Here's the list. Rich people worry about having enough money for retirement. Uh-oh, it got real quiet in here. Because we have some of those that are approaching those retirement years. Especially wondering, will there be enough? Even with Social Security, and they're speaking about that. The second would be worries about health. You remember last week I said we kind of um, lose our health to get our wealth, and then we take our wealth trying to get our health back. And so now we're worried about our health. And of course, especially with Obamacare and other things. And then being sued. When you're rich, you begin to wonder, is my money protected? And usually you've heard this phrase before. How many of you heard that often in lawsuits, the plaintiff is trying to go after the deep pocket? Have you heard that phrase before? Would you raise your hand? All right. They're trying to find who has the most money. And so rich people are often worried about being sued. Of course, identity theft, we all are, but those that have more to lose, they worry about it even more. Protecting your assets, business responsibilities, perhaps getting laid off. Now you've created this monster by what you have with the money that you had and you used your money to go ahead further into debt. So you had enough money to buy the better car, the better house, the better this, the better that, but you know you absolutely need your job because you now uh, birth by your money monsters that you have to now feed or they'll come and get you or take it away. So rich people worry about that. They also worry about their kids. Sometimes they even live in torture knowing that they could give their money to their son or their daughter, but their son will turn into one of these squandering playboys and rich jet-setting daughters. And they're wondering, I have all of this and I'm barely figuring out how to manage all of this. Will my kids even be able to do that? That's why I want to teach the seminar uh, in the fall on teaching your children how to handle their money because they're going to have to learn that earlier the better. And then finally, um, keeping up with the Joneses. In other words, uh, they got something, I got to get it. And maybe the Joneses aren't your neighbors. And I'm finding less and less in that. But here's what I am finding. The Joneses that are in our own houses and families, our own extended families, when they get something, we think we, we got to get it too in some measure. Now, I know that's not where everybody here is at. I and mean, it doesn't mean all of that is on the list of everybody. That list is for everybody that's rich. But I think all of us can pick and choose some things that are on there. Let's go back to the passage. So the folly of riches, again, is worry, but it's also pain. Verse 13 says, There is grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. 
we will speak about hoarding in another message, but hoarding, um, some people might define it as I'm being frugal with what I have. I'm managing what I have. And a lot of times people are hoarders because they're worried that if they don't have this later on, they will suffer. So they hoard it all right now because they've lost or don't believe in a God who can take care of them now as well as in the future. But it talked about to their hurt. And that hurt could be physical hurt. It could be relational hurt. It could be all sorts of hurts that goes on in your life. So pain is not just pain. Although, again, last week, you remember I gave you the most up-to-date information about a hoarder who lived below and he filled his bottom floor. He put stuff up on the second floor. The second floor was so filled with hoarded stuff that it now caved in on him and killed him. That's a perfect illustration of this verse. And then in verse 14, it talks about loss. It says, When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and the wealthy person fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. Can you imagine the pain you might feel if you made wrong choices because of greed or bad advice and you didn't seek out good counsel and you took what God's given to you and it turned out to be a bad investment? And now you have a son that you would like to either set up in business or help him along when he wants to get married or send him off to a a, a college that will equip him for for leadership and influence and now you can't really help him any longer. Or maybe a, a son or a daughter who goes through something in their life they didn't even control. A drunk driver hit them, there's no insurance and you've got to carry that child for the next 40, 50, 60 years until you're gone. But there's nothing left to do that. And so again, the folly of riches because we didn't do it right the first time. In the same passage, verse 15, it it talks about what we have now, we end up leaving to others. And sometimes that's good because we do plan our our estate planning and all of that, but most people don't do a good job at this, and it really gets given out incorrectly. Like one person who didn't fill out his form right, and when he finally found out that what he was to give to his own children, he lost $400,000. Some of you read that article. There was a loss at his death. So let's go back to the passage here and read what it says. It says, As he had come into the world naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So it is the advantage to him who toils for the wind. In other words, you do all of this work and you don't do anything with it. And so I could speak a whole message on the biblical basis of inheritance and who should get your money. Should it be everybody equal in your family? Should it be a firstborn? What about a daughter instead of a son? And how much do you leave them? Do you leave it for your grandkids? All concept. Bible speaks to that. And that's why we are here gathering faithfully, learning God's word so we know what he has to say. So that when we do give, it is to take care of the basic needs of our next generation. It is to help them to be equipped to be great influencers, but it is also to continue giving for the work of God and the building up of His kingdom and the glory of Jesus. Go back to the passage now. It says, Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. And basically, I simply say, the folly of riches is nothing more than a completely shattered life. Chasing after riches is a completely shattered life. Now, all of us may know someone who chased after riches. They didn't get a divorce. Their kids turned out pretty well. I get all of that. And their shatter is going to come when they never really needed God because everything they could buy here, they didn't care much about God. Or if they're a Christian, what they had all here, they lost all up there. They had eternal life, but they didn't get the reward. So the shattering of life is relative to God's calendar and not necessarily ours. I don't want to be all negative, but I can say this in grace. He's all negative right here. This is just the Bible. All right. Now verse 18. Let's pick it up. The positive. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. 
to eat, drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. So that's a, that's a mouthful there. But basically it says, those of you that have a job, enjoy what you have. Use it for the glory of God. See what God can do to build something in your life. And enjoy what you have to be able to eat. It may not be steak, it'll be hamburger. Hamburger is still better than garbage. So whatever you might have, you're going to enjoy and settle in and be content with that. It goes on to say, and I really love this, for this is his reward, to be satisfied with what you have right now. And then it goes on and says, furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, which means that it is not sinful to have money, it's not sinful to start poor and end rich, doesn't mean that you can't do that as long as you realize to whom God has given this wealth. And he does it through hard work. He might do it through godly investments. He might do it through answers to prayer. He might do it through multiple streams of income. However God chooses to do it, that wealth came from him. He has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So if God has prospered you, and look up here for just a moment. We are all prospered, aren't we? How many times we've stood in line and there's people grousing to the person that's at the cashier, the cash register, and they're grousing about all of this. And when I get to the cash register and I'm talking to the lady, my, my standard statement I make almost every day is, aren't we glad we don't live in Afghanistan and Iraq right now? Aren't we glad we don't live in some third world hellhole? We're here. We are so wealthy and so we can enjoy that. So enjoy what God has given to you. Verse 20 says, For he will not often consider the years of his life, that means the wealthy person, that has his head screwed on, because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. In other words, it doesn't say gladness of his money. He just says, What I have, I thank God for it. I'm using it for his glory. I'm content with what I have. I am so excited right now. I'm not worried about what I don't have, because God will take care of me, which is really the the basis of this message for today. All right, if you will, go back to the outline that you have in front of you. I'm going to hope maybe take you through it a little bit so you have some pegs to hold these truths on that might be a real blessing to you. I want to just talk about two things, the cautions against desiring wealth and the consequences for desiring wealth. And I must tell you that while I put the cautions and the consequences in two separate piles or two separate lists, these verses are so entwined together, the cautions are coming right with the consequences that it's so hard for me to just split up God's Word. So you're going to see an overlap here. And some of you that are of the personality style, you might say, that's not a caution, that's a consequence. I'm going to say to you, you're absolutely right. It was hard for me to divide up, but here's how it is. First of all, the cautions against desiring wealth. The desire means the presence of discontentment. When we have this desire for wealth, we're talking about things that God doesn't want us to have for right now. There's often because we are discontent. Go back to the passage now in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I told you to hold your place there if you did. Go to chapter 6 again and look in verses 6 through 9, and I'm going to read it to you. The desire means the presence of discontentment. So if you want to, if you want to, if you're starting to sense that there's this slippery slope when you go to the mall and you do a lot of mental window shopping at the Alamoana Mall particularly, and you see all these baubles that are out there, or if you go down to Waikiki to our own uh, Rodeo Drive of Kalakaua, if you do that and then we say, I, I appreciate that, this is really beautiful, however they did it, that somebody had a lot of brains to put all that together, that's fine. If God gave it to me, I'll accept it, I'll use it for His glory, etc. 
But when we're in our hearts are wanting it and it doesn't belong to us, nor we want it or we should have it, that's called covetousness. And there is direct link in Scripture between coveting something and idolatry. So when we begin to want something that God doesn't want us to have, that's covetous. And we want something that God doesn't want us to have, that becomes idolatry because we want more of that than we want what God's given to us. So we worship that more than we do the Lord. Now get that on tape so you can hear it again if you didn't get it. All right, Back to this. So it says, but godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompaniment by contentment. Now I wrestle with that because it sounds like I can have godliness without contentment. I don't think so. But I know the great gain is when I put it together. If we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. I like that because that's now the polyparodine of Job and Ecclesiastes. It says, if we have food and covering, and covering mostly refers to clothes, but it also could refer to something over your head like a house, a tent, and maybe even a mansion for those of you that are so blessed. With these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich, again, here's the cautions versus the consequences, will fall into temptation. Now, notice, notice the chain. Falls into temptation, and then a snare, and then many foolish, and then harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. I'm going to unpack that in just a moment. But notice it starts with a temptation. And I often think that in itself, temptations are not necessarily wrong because Jesus was tempted. It's what you do with a temptation. I like what uh, Billy Sunday said. A temptation is like a bird landing in your hair. Nothing wrong with that, but you don't let it make a nest there. You catch that? And so that might come. You deal with that temptation. But if you think about that temptation, the next step is it moves into a snare. And a snare is something that's got you then. All of a sudden, it's hard to get out of it. And remember this. It, your temptation is connected not just to your mind, but to, to your heart that's deceitful above, all, deceitful above all things. And now you've got all this junk going on inside of us that it then leads from a snare into foolish and harmful desires. Secondly, the desire leads to more evil. That's the case that's being built in verses 6 through 9. But it then jumps into verse 10. It leads to more evil. So we start with evil, but it just seems to multiply and grow like cancer. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And by some longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This verse is a huge verse in the original language that is just chock full of screaming warnings at us and reminding us of the horrific consequences when we desire more than what we should have. Huge verse. But the part I want you to look at when it says, longing for it, are wandering away from the faith, and they pierce themselves through with many griefs. That word pierce is an unusual word because in our language today, the piercing would be as if you were stabbed with a knife and then it's kind of twisted inside of you. So it's not just kind of a little piercing. It's a piercing and a twisting. One commentator said it's as if your soul is placed on a barbecue pit with a skewer in this thing and it's revolving over and over and over again as you are being destroyed. That's pretty huge. And it starts out with you wander from the faith. I'm going to speak to us pastors. Those, those pastors that are listening on the radio right now, you know, while we are very big at preaching these things to our people, we probably are the biggest deceived and deceiver culprits in this whole line of stuff. Because what happens then is we begin to have these visions of grandeur, such as, if I can borrow from another movie, if they build it, if we build it, they will come. You remember that? If we build it, they will come. So in our mind, we then create this vision. 
And I have to question, where did that vision come from? Probably not God, and for sure, why did it come from you? What part of you did it come from? And so we have this vision, but now this vision, we try to say it's for the glory of God, so we kind of justify this vision. Then we throw it out to the people, and we try to get them to fund that. In order to do that, now we're on this slippery slope because we too are desiring more, and as we do that, our theology then begins to be compromised and basically thrown out, and now we begin to either create our own theology or we borrow from someone else's false doctrine. And now to do that, to get more money, how can we get more money out of people? It might start by teaching on money like I'm doing here. So I too know that I'm on a slippery slope for which I need to be very careful. And you and I need to be prayerful that I don't slip there. But I can't not preach on it. Let me go a little bit further. So the money doesn't come in. So now I start looking, how can I get more money? So now we begin to bring in all these different kinds of fundraisers and people like that to do that. I'm not anti that, but I'm telling you we're a slippery slope further down. So now we get counting on those programs and those philosophies more than we count on God and God alone. Now, that may work for a little while, but now we start saying, wait, how does other people do it? You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.